Hello, my name is David Norris, and in this podcast, we're going to look at QAD feedback on their non-audit visits. So recently, we've had the reports from the QAD. They do this annually. They look at the various monitoring reviews that they've done in the past 12 months, and they give their key findings. Perhaps in many areas, there's no great surprise, and some of the reports appear quite similar to previous years. But there's a little bit new in there. And of course, it's always good to be reminded what the QAD are looking at. So if we deal with practice assurance first, uh, there's more detail on all of these on our compliance conference and in our special uh, longer webinars. But just the headlines today, then, they start in their report by talking about the areas of focus. They looked at independent examinations of charities as an area of focus, solicitors accounts rules audit, service charge accounts assignments, CAS 5 and other client money reports, and then they swept up some other assurance reports. I'm not going to go through all of it, but they do give feedback, particularly on independent examinations and make that uh, there's quite a lot of detail in there. They've made that quite a thing because I guess it's one of the most common sort of non-audit reports that firms do. Um, they give some detail. Uh, most firms have an engagement letter. A number of firms have checked that the entity doesn't need an audit, but very few in the sector seem to check whether they are independent. And that's really important, as the name suggests, for an independent examination. They refer to the procedures that firms have got in place, and most are using standard checklists, and they refer to the fact that most firms do have a degree of detail in terms of recording what they've done. I think our experience would still be that firms don't necessarily record the work that they do very well, uh, particularly if it's outside of the normal accounting work. And so they're saying a good proportion did not document the firm's consideration of judgments, estimates. They didn't consider the trustee's role in internal financial controls. They didn't understand or didn't document the consideration of uh, whether the trustees had ensured the restricted or endowed funds were treated properly. And there was relatively little work in confirming that related party disclosure had been dealt with properly. Only two thirds of firms had written representations and uh, a number of firms weren't including the independent examination work as part of their annual practice assurance process. Uh, the report then goes into more detail in other areas, which we don't have time for today. But if I was going to give a summary of what I can learn from that, then I'd say we do need to watch that we're evidencing all the work. Independent examinations and some of these others like solicitors, they are more than just accounts prep. So are we documenting the work? Do we understand the full scope of the directions? Are we documenting more than just this is the accounts, but we're looking at broader issues about what the trustee should do to safeguard the assets, make sure things are dealt with appropriately? We need to make sure that this work is properly reviewed, of course, on a just on an ongoing basis before reports are signed. But then we do need to go beyond that and think, how do we know that this work is properly assessed as part of our practice assurance, our, our annual cold review process? We've got to make sure that there's engagement letters for all work. Independent exams are no different from that. And they particularly say that firms are not great at tailoring it. And so we need to make sure that we tailor the work. Is it a 
a charity? Uh, yes, it must be, I suppose, for an independent exams. But is it a charitable trust? Is it a CIO? Is it a company? Are we using the right wording? Can we find that engagement letter? Have we checked we're independent? Have we checked that an independent examination is appropriate? And then what kind of training are we giving to our teams? Are we happy they understand uh, disclosure for the size of charity or if it's a company charity? Do they understand the role of the independent examiner, including any whistleblowing processes that might be needed? So, that's the extra detail they gave on some of those targeted areas. And then they gave a number of findings just broadly in the other areas that they would always look at. Uh, money laundering will come to later. But if we dip into some of the others, they say that 75 firms did not have a bank trust letter on their client's account. That is so important. I mean, so easy to do. Just write to the bank. In theory, it's easy to get them to reply, uh, but do make sure that is in place. Many firms we talk to have had a bank trust letter, but somehow it gets lost or misplaced. So do you have bank trust letters for all of your clients' accounts? Are you using designated accounts, something that regularly comes up on practice assurance reviews, firms just having uh, a general client's account they use uh, relatively uh, infrequently, perhaps, and then the firm doesn't notice that a large balance has crept up for an individual client because perhaps the trust uh, is uh, waiting to decide what to do with the funds or the, the client's waiting to to decide what to do with business proceeds or something. And the balance can just build up. So we need to make sure if it's more than £10,000 held for more than 30 days, there's a designated account set up. And then finally, in clients' money, they said 43 firms hadn't carried out an annual compliance review. Uh, it doesn't have to be external. So it doesn't have to be someone like me doing it but it is mandatory to do an annual compliance review, ideally by someone outside the normal uh, reconciliation and uh, monitoring of that account. Second group of findings then, engagement letter in terms of business. They said 108 firms had not informed their clients of the basis on which fees are charged um, and the complaints procedures, including the right to complain to the ICAW. So then that's the slap on the wrist. That's part of your, our ethical requirements to communicate that. So that should be in your terms of business or engagement letters. That's easy to fix, uh, but generally looked at badly if you don't do it. Uh, then they just say, you know, generally make sure your engagement letters are kept up to date. Great. And then they do say, make sure that when it comes to regulatory areas like DPB, that you don't say you're going to refer and work with an IFA if you don't have a DPB license. Next section then is eligibility issues, uh, ICAW records, annual return and notification of changes. And that does feel very admin-y, doesn't it? You know, that feels like, why are they putting in um, an admin uh, section on just you know, the annual return and things like that. The, the reason they mention it is that this can be a big deal. You know, if you've had a change and that might affect your eligibility for being a firm of chartered accountants and you perhaps have forgotten to tell them or told them late or told them using the annual return, which is not a proper basis of notification, then that can mean you are not a firm of chartered accountants. So you're, you're, the way you describe yourself uh, is wrong. And actually, it could also mean you don't have a properly appointed monitor for things like DPB uh, and money laundering. Um, so if you're changing the structure of your firm, 
try and get prior approval from the institute or consult with someone like Mercia. And if you have changed anything, look at the institute website, work out how to make that change of status known. The annual return is never the answer. Uh, deadlines are generally 10 working days or 14 days. So do make sure you do that and not the annual return. Uh, next one then, code of ethics. And I suppose the next two are linked because they talk about code of ethics, referral fees and commissions. And they also then talk about DPB boundary issues. So there's two issues then. Uh, make sure you deal with commission well. So if it's unregulated commission, which they do seem to find a little bit of, uh, if you've got unregulated commission, then you can get prior approval to keep it in an engagement letter, but you must still notify the client that it's been received. Uh, of course, if you haven't had prior permission to keep that commission, then that should go in the client's account. For regulated commission or referral fees, so you perhaps introduce the client to an IFA for pension purposes, that'd be regulated commission that should be uh, agreed with the client once they know that you've had the money. So you cannot rely on prior approval if it's regulated commission. And of course, you'd only have regulated commission. You'd only introduce a client for pension advice if you had a DPB license. Um, then they said in terms of DPB boundary issues, they just reiterate the point, as I've just said, some referrals require a DPB license. And if that is now starting to worry or confuse you, then have a look at the ICAEW website. And I'd refer people to the traffic lights guide uh, on DPB. So if you search, just search Google for ICAEW traffic lights guide, and it goes through a number of activities, including referrals and introductions, and it tells you when you might need a DPB license. That's really important. And then they say something that I think a lot of firms should think about is maybe you, maybe you don't even have a DPB license, but you're Maybe you do, but you're referring someone. Have you given any thoughts to who you're referring to and whether they are the right people? Now, that could be for all sorts of reasons. And sometimes do find firms who uh, let partners refer to anyone. Oh, I get on well with this person. And, and maybe there should be a bit more control and documentation. Because what they found then is that at up to 53 firms, people were referring to the wrong person for advice. So particularly, they were referring to restricted financial advisors without any thought as to whether that is appropriate. So if you've got partners or colleagues that you know do say, well, why don't you contact so-and-so? Maybe even if it's outside of DPB, you get some control as to who is being recommended and document why they are appropriate. Last couple then, a PI. Some firms have inadequate uh, professional indemnity insurance. I mean, that surprises me, but they do uh, indicate that it should be two and a half times fees. But of course, you've got the minimum 100,000, maximum 600,000, and maximum is a slightly meaningless phrase, I suppose. What they mean is that once you get past 600,000, then you make a judgment as to the level of PI that you have. And it's a broadly speaking, as you get past uh, a million or, or two million of turnover, we tend to find firms go for something like turnover as being the an indication of the level of PI, because you're really trying to understand the level of potential claim. 
Um, just don't be naive that it's just the the loss from that claim because if the client has a claim for half a million and that's gone through the courts, then you could double it uh, or triple it once you've added legal fees. The report does say that they will look at the PI proposal. So make sure you look at that carefully and you consider whether you've included all of your kinds of work, uh, specifically whether you've got any tax schemes that need to be addressed and declared, and then whether you've got any specialist work, whether it's corporate finance or DPB or uh, probate, obviously make sure that's particularly notified. And then the final section, they refer to data protection, and they don't really give any detail uh, of this last point, but they do say that 11 firms haven't put adequate procedures in place for GDPR. So not sure exactly what that was, but it may be they haven't uh, done a risk register. They haven't considered the data that they've got, who can access it and, and what they've got. They haven't done any training or procedures uh, for staff. And maybe they just haven't done the, the basics of having a data retention and destruction policy and then communicating something about the use of data to clients. Um, there'll be lots of examples in our manuals if you're interested in that. And there is a whole GDPR hub that the Institute have uh, if you want some more guidance um, I mean, sadly, the they do uh, make a note that 44 firms weren't even registered with the Information Commissioner, which is just uh, a gobsmacking to me. Surely every firm knows they have to register. Whether it's paper or electronic data, you have personal data of your clients, uh, inevitably. Um, points of reference for next year, then they refer to going to give a special focus to professional indemnity insurance, which is interesting. Um, and then they refer to the fact they're going to look at complaints and client satisfaction. So perhaps just give some thought to that in the coming months. Do you have a good complaints procedure? Um, when I ask firms, have you, have you got a complaints procedure? They often show me an empty folder and say, there's my complaints folder. I don't get any. Um, I'm not sure I believe you when you say that. I mean, maybe Mercia is unusual. I know we have um, website issues occasionally. And so some comments might just be about, I can't access the website, help me reset my password. But I think when I talk to a lot of firms, they have an awful lot of comments, clients saying, are you sure that's the right fee? Can't you hurry up? And so maybe part of your conversation with a QAD inspector or documenting your internal processes would be, you know, what do we do when a client comments? How do we capture that? How do we respond to that? Because the, the QAD is saying for next year, we're not just looking at complaints, we're looking at client satisfaction. So where's the line between monitoring client comments and when that comment becomes a complaint? And, you know, I'm not saying Mercia always does it perfectly, but we've been working really hard to get a ticketing system for comments, trying to train staff when a client raises a question, let's log that, let's make sure we deal with it before it becomes a complaint. You know, trying to put a lot of effort. Uh, we've recruited people to help do that. And I wonder if if you could say the same about your firm or could there be client comments uh, and queries where actually they just get lost in correspondence files? So just have a think about that. Um, and maybe that does link to PI that the inspectors will then say, have you had any client comments? Have you had any complaints? And then at what point are you notifying your PI provider? 
Okay, the other report that has come out recently has been the QAD report on anti-money laundering reviews. Uh, the report does go into a fair amount of detail about the resources that the Institute have made available. They're quite proud of it, and they do see that as quite a key part of their role. And many of you will have seen the film All Too Familiar, which is uh, a great bit of fun, but a useful reminder um, one of the things I like at the beginning of the report is they remind people about the risks that we have in our sector. And, you know, a lot of it we know, you know, high risk activity, high net worth individuals, PEPs, high risk countries. But they do also say significant clients money, payroll services and trust and company service providers. And I do find often firms are very casual in their money laundering risk where they have significant balances or significant usage of the client's account or where um, they do a payroll, particularly if it's a payroll only client. Maybe you have a bureau, maybe you don't know the clients that well, and yet you run a significant number of payroll. So just thinking about, do we need to give some uh, specific training to our payroll administrators? Do we need to make sure there's just basic questions? How would you spot a risk? And the Institute's video, all too familiar, can be a useful discussion starter for your teams. So there's lots more in the report about the monitoring process and uh the findings, but let's go through, I think there's eight or 10 key points. So uh, I don't know what order this is in, but maybe this is order of priority. But there's the first one is updating customer due diligence. So make sure your customer due diligence say, I don't like ID because ID is just a small part of the process. Customer due diligence is knowledge of the client, uh, working out what the client's told you. That's identification and then checking it. That's verification. So is it being up to kept up to date? Is it kept up to date periodically on a risk basis? Is it kept up to date when something changes, the client incorporates, uh, adds a new service, starts using your client's account? Is it updated then when you have a suspicious activity? Secondly, they say common findings that on some new clients, we're not even doing customer due diligence, maybe because we're just jumping straight in to ID and new client forms. So make sure that for all new clients, you are doing customer due diligence. Even if all you do is create a company for them, customer due diligence is needed. Um, risk assessment then. Firms often have poor risk assessments. They often have risk assessments that are the same across the whole practice. Uh, and even on the relatively small sample that I do, you know, if Mercia does a money laundering review, we may only look at five or 10 clients, something like that. Um, even a relatively small sample like that, we regularly find that one or two of them have something odd. There's an awful lot of cash in the business or there's uh, someone that's overseas or there's uh, money, uh, an outside investor. There's often something that you think the firm should have picked up and at least discussed as a potential higher risk. So is your risk assessment valid, backed up by background information, including sources of wealth? Does that lead to this risk? That then leads to the amount of verification that you do. Uh, the next one, this is fourth, I think, if you're counting firm-wide risk, you've got to have a firm-wide risk assessment. I assume everyone does by now. And uh, I'm sure the inspectors like me would be saying, come on, your profile of the practice, particularly during lockdown, must have changed. For example, a lot more 
uh, clients being talked to remotely. So you must be in a position where you've revisited your risk register, particularly if we're saying trust and company services providers and payroll and use of the client's account are now flagged as higher risk. Is that properly addressed in your firm-wide risk assessment? How are you handling risk? How are you responding to the risk um, where you have 20, 30, 80, 100 uh, payroll cases? Fifth one is PSC register. They're saying that firms don't have good written procedures and they are actually not regularly responding where there are discrepancies between what the client told you and what the PSC register actually shows. Uh, we've had a recent update. The time limit in the final CCAB guidance is now 15 days, so slightly quicker. Uh, we've also had a bit of guidance that says, look, if it's just a small uh, insignificant error, then you probably don't need to report. So if someone spelt my name with an M rather than an N for Norris, which winds me up, that's not something that I'm going to report. I'd still correct it because it winds me up, but I'm not going to report it. Um, so we we need to clarify that with our team, give a bit of training and make sure we have a good process for that. Um, how do you review your policies and processes? Do you have an annual compliance review? This is the sixth one, if you're counting. So uh, where's your annual review? Must be more than just using the force and saying, I think, I feel that there's no tremors in the force. My procedures are working. There should be some actual reviews uh, of files and uh, review of training records and review perhaps of the reporting process. Uh, next one, the seventh one, I think, if we're counting, then have you got written policies and procedures, I suppose, to review in the first place? Um, there's no point telling an inspector you have a manual because we've perhaps got some templates in there, but they, you know, they, they need to be updated. What forms will you use? When will you use electronic checking? What's your approach to payroll? What's your approach to due diligence and so on and so on? So they will want to see tailored procedures. They should probably then be uh, demonstrably approved by people. Um, so they've signed the procedures or signed a checklist to say that they've read the procedures and they're reviewed and kept up to date. And so I presume that it, you've got procedures and I presume that they would show review over the last couple of years because we've had new regulations followed by draft and then final CCAB guidance. So you must be tweaking those all the time. We've had guidance about high risk countries. The, the list in Schedule 3ZA keeps changing. Uh, we've had changing guidance what to do with Russia. We've had changing guidance, as I mentioned, even about how quickly to respond to the PSC register. So presumably your policies and procedures are regularly reviewed and then regularly reissued uh, to staff. The next one, I think it's eight, uh, training. Yeah, we love a bit of training. Um, I've, I've seen this on visits myself, several inspectors saying, is there a training plan? And uh, so some firms are very good at saying we've got sort of a multifaceted approach. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? You know, we have perhaps some formal webinars. Maybe we have some informal meetings and then maybe we do some circulation of newsletters that the Institute or Mercia provide. And if you're interested in those newsletters, then do get in touch with us. So it might be you do that. You have a range. There's some annual formal training. There's some informal meetings, some Q&As maybe. There might also be some material that gets circulated. But do uh, put that in place and uh, write that down, monitor that that's working. And you know, do think about how it works for different people. So, for example, I go to a number of firms and quite often they say, 
We are going to run the Mercia introductory webinar every three years. And I just think that's pointless. You know, if you're listening to this and you are a senior, a manager, a partner, you're an experienced accountant, re-watching, uh, it might even be me, you know, talking for half an hour on what's the definition of money laundering, what's layering and placement, that's pointless. That's not going to do anything for you. Your training needs to be, what are we doing on sanctions? What are higher risk business services that I need to look out for? What are higher risk clients? What's the latest guidance on sanctions and, and and what's the kind of issues that I should be reporting you know so do think about whether the training should be different for juniors new clients receptionists as opposed to senior client facing people I think this is number nine then if I can count um the next failing is a lack of dbs's for the uh, owners and uh, principals I mean you just got to do it there's no excuses make sure you've got it you don't have to keep it as a firm if that's sensitive but you should know that you've got it and uh, if you are a uh, owner or a, a principal then make sure you're prepared to disclose that to the institute they might ask for it as part of a monitoring process if they don't see it as part of a visit they may ask for it as part of a separate uh, postal or desktop review Finally, then, oh, it's back to eligibility. They say that in some cases they find firms that have no AML supervisor. And you think, how can that be? Well, if you forgive me for being technical for a minute, the issue is all about your status. So if you're not controlled um, and owned um, 100 percent by actual, uh, not 100 percent, but more than 50 percent, I should say. So if you're not controlled and owned more than 50 percent by actual chartered accountants. So that means living, breathing chartered accountants, not an entity, then you cannot be a firm of chartered accountants. So subsidiaries cannot be chartered accountants. Those that are controlled by chartered accountants, but not owned by more than 50% chartered accountants, they cannot be firms of chartered accountants. So that means you're not automatically monitored by the Institute for uh, money laundering. However, if you've got uh, chartered accountants, owners and principals, then you can apply for monitoring by the Institute. It's just a slightly different relationship. You have a contract for uh, regulation and uh, it, you know you have to just change the way you describe yourself. It's what SWAT had to do a few years ago. Uh, and I guess that's what Mercia does being regulated for money laundering, but a subsidiary of a listed company. So just be a little careful. Uh, if you change the practice significantly or buy a business and it sits under you as a subsidiary, if you're not uh, automatically a firm of chartered accountants, then you need to apply specially for a contract for regulation. So I hope that wasn't too long and I hope that wasn't too brief. We have more detail on a number of courses, but do have a look at those reports. They're PDFs available from the Institute website uh, and uh, they will help you work out what are the common pitfalls that other firms are tripping over. If you can avoid those, you should do well on QAD visits. Thank you for listening.